Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky from Northwestern, and I'd like to welcome you to the May 2020 uh, podcast for AJT Highlights. This month, we'll be highlighting five papers, four clinical papers and one basic science paper. And with me, as always, is Roz Manon from University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today we have a guest, Benjamin Hippen from Metrolina Nephrology Associates in Charlotte, North Carolina, to be talking about his paper. And he has graciously offered to review two other papers that deal with kidney transplantation. So uh, welcome, Roz and, and Benjamin. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. And thank you for the invitation. So uh, I'm going to start with a paper that uh, I'm a co-author on, along with Alan Reed, who's a transplant surgeon at the University of Iowa, Terry Ketcherson, and uh, Dr. Frank Maddox, who are both uh, in the medical office with Resinius Medical Care North America. So the, the background behind this paper is uh, the follow-on from a pilot project that was undertaken by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation about five years ago. Uh, back in 2015, uh, CMMI, as they're called, were really trying to bend the cost curve for uh, patients uh, with end-stage renal disease. And in an effort to do that, they encouraged dialysis providers and nephrology practices to collaborate with one another uh, to create uh, independent third-party structures to try and improve care coordination for patients with ESRD. Uh, they were financially incented to do so by, giving, by being provided an opportunity to share any cost savings compared to a historic uh, benchmark of how much it costs to take care of, of patients with ESRD for all of their costs, not just their nephrology-focused costs. And in the first year of that program, uh, these ESCOs, or ESRC Seamless Care Organizations in 13 markets, saved Medicare about $75 million. That, pro that program has been going on for the last five years or so, and it's scheduled to expire in January of 2020. And so in an effort to try and create uh, a new program to replace the ESCOs, uh, an executive order was released back in July, which outlined a series of both mandatory and voluntary payment models, uh, encouraging nephrology practices in particular to uh, continue on with uh, their efforts at trying to both coordinate care and, and bend the cost curve uh, for these patients. What's different about the new payment models uh, is that they now include patients with advanced CKD, that is CKD stage four and five, as well as patients with ESRD. And there's a little bit of incentives to try and increase transplantation sprinkled in between. Uh, what's conspicuous about these payment models uh, is that they're really very general nephrology focused and they're really very much focused on patients with advanced CKD and ESRD. There's not much there about transplant, although many of us who were uh, involved in the ESCO programs over the years and were solicited for comment were really very eager for uh, the government to try and include uh, transplantation uh, more robustly than they ultimately ended up doing. But in short, the payment models provide both a mandatory model, uh, which imposes uh, sticks and carrots, financially speaking, on nephrology practices for their uh, rates of home uh, therapies penetration, as well as their rates of transplant. As a companion to the mandatory model, uh, there are a couple of different varieties of voluntary payment models, one of which is a capitated payment model. Uh, which does incentivize transplant, but only requires nephrology practices to participate. Nephrology practices can go out and identify additional 
uh, stakeholder partners like a transplant center or like a dialysis organization, but they're not obligated to do so. And then the more ambitious, the more robust voluntary payment models would actually involve taking risk on the total cost of care for patients with advanced CKD4, CKD5, uh, and uh, ESRD. Now, the total cost of care uh, for this very large patient population extends into the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the market that you're talking about. And uh, in particular, with these more uh, ambitious payment models, these so-called comprehensive kidney care contracting models, the, uh, the kidney care entity, the entity that's going to be bearing risk, uh, either for a financial upside if they save money or a financial downside if they lose money, has to include uh, what's called a transplant provider. Now, when this paper was published in September of 2019, online early, it was still unclear as to who counted as a transplant provider. It wasn't clear if it meant that a general nephrology practice had to collaborate with an established transplant center or an individual transplant nephrologist or a transplant surgeon. What's since emerged is that a transplant provider, at least according to the government, is defined very, very liberally. And so at this point, um, uh, there are only a handful of transplant centers that are directly involved as uh, established stakeholders in any of the applications that have gone in for this more robust risk-bearing uh, model. Now, the other reason we wanted to write the paper was it seemed I won't say clear because uh, this is a very complicated payment model, but it wasn't very clear as to what was at stake in all these payment models for transplant centers. And so uh, the purpose of the paper was really to try and do our best, try and elucidate what this was going to mean for transplant centers, transplant physicians, and transplant surgeons. And all told, it wasn't really clear that the payment models that were proposed actually had a lot of impact for transplant centers. In many ways, uh, they were largely left out of this model. Now, they did, it, ostensibly, a transplant center could be part of one of these more robust, ambitious, total cost of care, financial upside, financial downside uh, entities. But really, because transplant centers, uh, kidney transplant programs in particular, operate on fairly thin financial margins, it's really hard to imagine that a transplant center, even a very uh, uh, sophisticated one, would have the actuarial or uh, claims data expertise to really uh, intelligently go in uh, on taking risk on patients with CKD4 and 5 and ESRD. In fact, patient populations, they're not really directly involved in taking care of at all. Uh, added to that is uh, the, the forthcoming implementation of the 21st Century Cures Act. Now, the 21st Century Cures Act is a 500-page piece of legislation on page 496 of which includes a codicil that says that patients with ESRD who are Medicare, traditional Medicare primary beneficiaries will be eligible to participate in Medicare Advantage programs. Now, that may just sound as boring as watching paint dry. However, for transplant centers, it has enormous financial implications. Now, the reasons for this is because patients who have a Medicare Advantage plan, by definition, have a plan that's underwritten by a private insurer. There are lots of concerns about the extent to which some of these uh, MA plans uh, may not have as generous uh, a pharmaceutical benefit for coverage of immunosuppression. And for the overall financial health of the transplant center, kidneys that go to a Medicare Advantage beneficiary don't count uh, in, the, in the transplant center's Medicare organ ratio, which has really important implications for how much money a transplant center can recover on its Medicare cost report. So, in addition to that, uh, 
we talked a little bit about how the shift uh, in allocation of kidneys from local regional to a more geographic equitable approach, uh, which is which is now coming down the pike, may have an impact both on the general nephrology practices whose quality benchmarks are going to be based on their transplant rate uh, and how that may also affect uh, transplant centers. We also talked a little bit about how there's a variety of different incentives that are coming from different places which uh, aren't, aren't always compatible with one another. So for example, uh, the CMS conditions for coverage that cover dialysis facilities have a new quality metric uh, that affects the dialysis clinic's bottom line, which has to do with its so-called PPPW or percent of prevalent patients waitlisted. So now a dialysis facility will be benchmarked based on how many patients, not they referred, but they actually referred and are actually waitlisted. On the other hand, private payers who are uh, negotiating payment contracts with transplant centers include in, in, in part of their metrics in trying to assess how uh, favorable or unfavorable they're going to negotiate a private payer contract or a global case rate the transplant center. Uh, focus on a different kind of transplant rate. That is the percentage of your waiting list that actually gets transplanted. This disincentivizes transplant centers from having a large waiting list. On the other hand, dialysis facilities who really want to get a lot of their patients waitlisted to meet this PPPW metric really want a big waiting list. So all told, this is sort of a mishmash of uh, conflicting incentives and transplant centers are sort of caught in the middle. So the idea behind this paper was really to try and alert the transplant community to uh, a number of these uh, confusing and uh, sometimes alarming regulatory changes that are coming down the pike and also come up with some early ideas for how transplant centers could uh, integrate themselves into some of these payment models in a way that serves our patients by increasing access to transplantation and also improves overall the financial health of transplant centers. Well, thanks for summarizing, Ben, a very complicated executive order, which was met with a lot of applause and heralded by many patients and, and indeed dialysis groups. But, you know, the reality when the rubber hits the road is it obviously is much more complicated. I think that, you know, one of the things I've always thought of is, you know, the, the center is already undertaking risk and, and how does it happen if they take someone that's a high KDBI kidney or a long cold time and they have prolonged DGF and, you know, how does that affect it? And, and, and I do feel the way you all have written this is how much risk the transplant center financially has to undertake is not, it, it just seems to me almost at times overwhelming. And I think the idea was that everybody would win and the patients would win and, you know, at least when it first came out. And my own struggle is how do you, when we are in meetings at any medical center I've been, the local physician, the community practice, it never really sounds like it's a happy relationship. Uh, maybe it's a fellow you trained, so you have a good rapport, but uh, I struggle with trying to understand how to get these facilities more engaged. And it's a struggle even now when you list someone and they show up five years later and they had valve replacement surgery and a reduced DF and you didn't even know because they're like number 800 on your waiting list. So I think you point out some very um, complicated issues, which I don't, with COVID, everybody's sort of forgetting about what's going to happen when there's life after COVID. Right. Is there a sense about where this executive order will be if there's a change in the administration? Because it is, it's somebody, one of the re reviews called it a legislation, but I thought it was an executive order. So I wasn't sure 
21st century careers is a law. I get that. And I didn't know about the Medicare, the, the MAs. That's, that was helpful for me to learn about, too. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't pretend to predict the future, particularly in this era and what's going to happen with another administration. But I, I do think that uh, this is going to move forward regardless of who is, uh, who's in authority, in part because I think it's generally agreed that uh, the cost curve for uh, the care of patients with ESRD needs to bend. Yeah, uh, it needs to. Uh, and, and there are plenty of opportunities to do that. Uh, I do think that uh, the executive order payment models, which are really focused just on tradition, patients with traditional Medicare, are just the beginning of what's going to be, I think, a transformation in how care gets paid for for all of these patients, advanced CKD, ESRD and transplant, because I think that private payers are also quite interested in bending the cost curve and everybody uh, is interested in trying to improve care coordination. I think what that especially means for transplant is trying to dismantle the artificial barriers and silos between transplant centers, dialysis providers, and general nephrologists. And it's easy to sort of talk about that in the abstract because everybody sort of can, can agree in principle to do that. But what that really means in terms of nuts and bolts is uh, opening the doors of the dialysis clinic to the transplant program in a way that doesn't outstrip their bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, I think that there's a general sense on the part of transplant providers that uh, they're not getting access to all the patients who should be referred. On the other hand, they just don't have the bandwidth to evaluate everybody. Right. So there's got to be some sort of an in-between where the doors of the dialysis clinic can be open to, say, a transplant RN coordinator who can come in and screen charts and maybe do chairside education or group teaching in the dialysis facility and initiate the referral and create some efficiencies along those lines. And I think that dialysis providers increasingly are interested in that. I think they're also interested, again, because of this PPW, PPPW metric, which is just a harbinger of a desire to get a better grip uh, on a population level of what's going on with their patients on the transplant side, because for many of us, it's a black box. I, I, I hear you say I, that. It's, it's, I hear that all the time. It's a black hole. And I'm like, yeah. eh, it shouldn't be that way. But coming from a high volume program, it's, I, you know, and you're getting, you know, quite a number of referrals a month. Um, it does get that way and, and trying to create these open relationships. But I think it was a great, it was a great paper, Ben. Um, we could talk about it all day. And right. you know, I know you were going to talk about it ATC, which now is not ATC. It's virtual ATC. So yeah, um, why don't we uh, maybe let's move on. Yeah, let's maybe if you could just a uh, couple minutes on each. Um, okay, the sure. Uh, paper, the economic burden. You got it. So the next paper is by Jesse Sussel and colleagues. And uh, this is a paper that really uh, brings a new piece of information to the literature, which is uh, the uh, economic burden of, let's just call it um, premature uh, graft failure. You know, there's been a lot of econo econometric data about uh, the relative benef cost benefit of transplant versus uh, dialysis in the short term. But what this paper really brings uh, to the fore is uh, the economic burdens of uh, graft failure uh, later on in, in the course of the transplant. So what Sussel and colleagues did was basically created a state transition model, which offered a couple of different potential transplant-focused outcomes for patients. 
One is a functioning transplant to death with graft function, a functioning transplant to graft failure, graft failure back to a functioning graft with a retransplant, and graft failure to death. And in each of these different states, they sort of assumed that the risk of each of these other states was zero. And they did that for the purposes of trying to isolate the actual uh, cost burden of coming from uh, a desirable to an undesirable state. For the, uh, and, and measured that really both in terms of cost expenditures and quality of life years. Now, uh, one of the useful things about this paper is that there's an enormous debate uh, among health economists about how to value quality of life years, because quality of life years isn't just about how much money is spent uh, on patients, but also uh, how much money one would be willing to spend to regain a, a qualitative quality of life year. And so what's really helpful about this particular study is rather than pick a particular monetary value of quality of life years, they actually measured across a spectrum of uh, value of quality of life years from $0 to $250,000, with the question being asked, if you were willing to spend this amount of money to regain a quality of life year, how much money would be lost if you uh, had premature graft failure? And what they found was really striking. Even uh, extending out graft survival to uh, beyond 10 years, uh, they found that even if they assumed that there was uh, zero risk of graft failure and uh, grafts and, and grafts were lost just to death, you could regain by eliminating graft failure or uh, altogether, you could regain an additional 1.9 years of life, 1.66 quality of life years, and save on the order of $78,000 just for those additional 1.9 years. And applying those just to the total number of transplants in 2017, payers could reclaim something on the order of $1.4 billion and regain something uh, close to 30,000 quality of life years. So um, all told, this underscores what we already know uh, for patients, which is that uh, extending graft survival beyond the uh, well-known and well-appreciated one and three-year patient in graft survival is not only beneficial to patients, obviously, but is enormously beneficial to payers and to taxpayers. They also broke out rejection in particular and tried to figure out what the, uh, what the life years gain, the qualities gain, and the cost savings would be if hypothetically rejection as a cause of graft failure could be completely eliminated. They found that actually rejection didn't uh, reclaim that much life, that many qualities, or that much money, which suggests that perhaps our focus not necessarily shouldn't be on eliminating uh, rejection as a cause of graft failure, but may need to be focused on other non-immunologic features uh, to really get uh, the most bang for our buck, uh, literally and life speaking. So overall, it was very well designed. Uh, It brought new information to the literature uh, above and beyond the usual health economic studies uh, in transplantation. Uh, What it really focused on for me was uh, the role of management of transplant uh, patients with advanced CKD, and in particular, their transition back to dialysis, because I think a lot of the costs uh, that are recognized in the study are from patients who who have a very rough transition from advanced CKD back to ESRD. It's well appreciated that these folks have a very high mortality rate. Only 30% of them start uh, dialysis with a permanent access. They tend to suffer many of the vicissitudes of overimmunosuppression after they start dialysis. And so there's plenty of opportunity going back to our first, our initial conversation about the first paper of really improving care coordination and 
sharing care between general and transplant nephrologists for this particular patient group, uh, not only to reduce costs, but also to keep them healthy, ideally, so that they can be retransplanted. So great study overall, of, highly recommended. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because I sort of, um, you know, this isn't my, my field uh, of interest, but um, like I, it sort of occurred to me that this was, this was sort of obvious that a graft failure would be very expensive on the healthcare system and that this hadn't, this type of analysis, though, doesn't seem like to have been done previously. And so I was, you know, just kind of surprised at that it hadn't been done before, but also the comprehensiveness that this group conducted this study to put basically all of these different costs and scenarios together to come up with uh, this analysis. I thought it was really pretty novel. And again, I think, um, well, they had the advantage because they are, you know, there's both health economists and, and access to SRTR. And I think that helps. I think it emphasizes management of comorbidities, which is poorly reimbursed on the transplant nephrologist side. And again, when you talk about the lack of continuum of care, there are those centers that really say one and three year adios, bye. And oh, then you come in with a blood pressure of 220 over 110. And oh, well, we check it. Oh, it's only 190. Talk to your community physician. And then they go out and have a stroke. So the, this is kind of a paper that to me, like the, you know, the previous paper, you really have to, we really need for the next generation to be thinking about how are we giving care and, and what is our role? And, and yes, there is compensation, but a lot of the tinkering that happens at times really, I think is important. And I, and I again, completely agree that transition from progressive graph failure is another unmet need that we have to study. And we just haven't done uh, enough for it. We've spent so much time looking at biomarkers of rejection mm -hmm. and you know, worrying about, oh my God, do they have subclinical? And yet this paper sort of says, you know, rejection's rejection, you can treat it. It's not the, the be all and end all, but it's probably all the other things. So our last in this triumvirate of like care and cost and improvement in systems, I thought was the Maria Ibrahim paper. Ben, and you agreed to review this as well and, and fit it into this whole story about international comparison of deceased donorization between the US and UK and what can we learn from each other? Sure, so um, uh, sort of in the vein of the way to increase access to transplant is to increase access to transplant. Uh, this is a paper that's uh, very usefully adds to uh, a body of literature that's really come out of Eurotransplant, uh, because for the last 15 years or so, uh, our, our colleagues in Eurotransplant have uh, shown that they're really able to use kidneys that, by and large, uh, centers in the United States tend to discard. Uh, what's really useful about this paper, which is based on UK, comparing UK data and uh, uh, US data, is that they really make an effort uh, in ways that a lot of the other uh, Eurotransplant literature I don't think does, try and compare as best they can apples to apples. Uh, and in particular, Ibrahim and colleagues really highlight a, a, a operational difference between the UK and the US, and that in the UK, they typically pursue organ procurement after a transplant center has already accepted the organ, whereas in the United States, typically the OPO uh, will typically uh, proceed with organ procurement before really nailing down organ acceptance on the part of the center. And one of the interesting novel features of this paper is that they showed that the process of securing acceptance from the transplant center before procuring the organs 
has at least something to do with the lower rates of discard, particularly in the UK. That being said, I think Ibrahim and colleagues show what our Eurotransplant colleagues have shown, which is that they can achieve fairly good outcomes being more aggressive uh, in both the DCD side as well as uh, the older donor side. I was really struck in uh, looking at their figure three in particular, where over the course of a decade, 2007 to 2017, uh, their percentage of organs procured from 70 plus year olds went from 2%, which is about what ours is, up to over 10%. And uh, not just, just to show that these were not organs that were procured and bucketed, uh, they were also able to show that these, these organs that they're procuring from uh, older donors are also getting transplanted. Uh, their DCD rates have also gone up over the same time frame. I'm not exactly sure what, uh, what got into the UK uh, back in 2007, but uh, they very successfully were able to double their DCD rates from about 20% of all uh, deceased donors to fairly consistently about 40% about half of, uh, whereas the U.S. has about half that rate of DCD donors. Um, in terms of outcomes, I think that uh, the, the, the U.K. study here really shows uh, outcomes very similar to our uh, Euro transplant colleagues looking at all-cause uh, death uncensored uh, graft survival of uh, about 90% uh, for DCD donors and 87% for high KDBI DCD donors. These are not uh, outcomes that we would look at as successful uh, in the United States, probably and primarily driven by the fact that uh, our regulatory regime really doesn't, uh, really doesn't see it that way, both from the payer and from the regulator standpoint. The other thing I thought was very interesting uh, about their uh, the, the, the demographic differences here between the U.S. and the U.K. is that the median donor age for these high KDPI DCD kidneys was 58 in the United States, 69 in the U.K. So really their high KDPI is much more driven by age than the high KDPI donor, DCD donors in the United States. And that may have something to do with significant differences in graft survival, that is, uh, lower graft survival in the United States with these high KDPI DCD organs compared to IKDBI DCD organ outcomes in the UK. So all told, I think that uh, this reinforces the message from Eurotransplant that we uh, in the United States have embraced the precautionary principle when it comes to these so-called higher risk organs. Uh, that being said, I think that uh, in my view, the large, the, the, the predominant reason for that um, has to do with regulatory concerns about uh, falling afoul of uh, CMS metrics, falling afoul of uh, private payers uh, with regard to their center of excellence designation, um, as well as uh, the problems with the DRG, which we talked about very little bit in the first talk, but, but, but along with the short being that the DRG payment for the first 30 days of hospitalization uh, barely covers uh, a, an immediate graft function deceased donor kidney transplant often uh, exceeds it. Uh, and for kidneys like this that uh, require longer hospitalizations, more DGF, more back and forth to the hospital for dialysis, uh, it's just financially not feasible right now. Hopefully, uh, in the new era, uh, that will change. All told, uh, a useful study, modestly added to our knowledge of the literature, but um, and, and, and an important difference, uh, that effort to try and meet ap apples to apples with regard to uh, UK and US differences in uh, how they proceed with organ procurement, um, but told us a lot of what we already knew.
So, uh, you know, I agree in, so, in somewhat. I mean, I think this is another paper that emphasizes the regulatory policies of low risk, you know, the low risk centers are the winners, essentially. It doesn't win for the patient. I was also interested in your comment about the KDPI drivers, perhaps being primarily older age, but maybe not the comorbidities that drive the younger KDPI, i.e., you know, anybody over 50 and I don't, you know, we got to the KDPI from the old ECD days, and so I don't know if there's a way to tease that out any further, um, but I suppose you could do that. You could pull SRTR data and look at that. I don't know enough about the UK system, Ben. I mean, I, I wonder if the drive in DCD is related to how their OPO is set up and, and whether it's a national OPO where the drivers and the coordinators and, and the integration of that is an integration of excellence in DCD and potentially organ preservation, whereas here we've got 58 different ways things are done and, you know, access to um, rural areas may be different and, and managing, you know, donor management really varies across the country. So um, that may be one reason, but I don't know in particular, and it wasn't really addressed in the in the editorial either. It's something I probably should have reached out to to one of the authors. I was wondering that also. I mean, with uh, you know, UK also has kind of pioneered machine perfusion, mm -hmm. and you know, I think they probably can. You know, that's probably led to some some of their increases in using you know higher risk donors, higher DRI donors, and it's a smaller smaller country, right? I mean, they can yeah. get organs to places where they much more quickly, but still, still, uh, definitely some, there's differences though, between their system and our system. Like you said, on the, just starting from the, the organ offer, it's kind of bad. It's kind of flipped around. Right. They, I agree. I think it's very difficult to, uh, elucidate. I mean, all of us who do transplant know that there's DCD and there's DCD. There's the blood pressure, there's the donor with the blood pressure of 60 for four hours, and then there's the the DCD who progresses to asystole in seven minutes. Uh, and, and these are different, whether whether there's differences in management, difference in machine, machine perfusion more in the UK, it's hard to say. It was interesting to see on that note that there was no real difference noted in cold times for these DCD organs. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. Well, great. Well, why don't we, Roz, do you want to just... I have like uh, two minutes for everything else and then... So sorry. You're no, welcome. Okay. No, 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 absolutely not. You're welcome. This always happens. We get, yeah. we get wrapped up in the visiting speaker, and which is good. That's the point. Yeah. Of having that's, that's the point. I mean, so <laughs> I don't want to dismiss this paper, but, and so I'll try to give it some attention and allow the, the audio editing to occur. This is um, a paper by Jennifer Verbasi and colleagues. Uh, senior author is Matt Cooper from uh, Georgetown, looking at URI graft losses in uh, paired kidney exchange, the NKR experience over the last 10 years. And I I'm just going to summarize this by saying that in, in reviewing this network that facilitates uh, paired kidney donation amongst like 85 centers uh, in the U.S., um, the authors undertook to find out what would happen if the worst thing happened with a living donor, and that is either URI graph failure or primary non-failure. And suffice it to say that these are unusual and uncommon events. They, they had graft failure in the first year in about 1.6% of recipients, 38 grafts. And primary non-failure only occurred in 13 over the 10-year period. And the point of this paper really is in describing the 13 failures. It's impossible to say, oh, this is a high risk. 
um, because it's only an N equals 13, but they do kind of review the surgical issues potentially and potential donor injury. Again, remember that when you're in one of these swaps, uh, the donor hospital is responsible for obtaining the kidney and there's a level of trust that the donor surgeon will provide you a high quality organ. And, and I think for the most part, this paper indicates that they do, but there's sometimes inscrutable human things about getting the, the kidney out. And so there actually is a process that's outlined in the discussion of this paper, including a lot of demographic information that you're welcome to review. But essentially that there's, there's this end chain policy. So if there's an early loss like this or primary non-function, there is a whole review process, including pictures and surgical review and, and external reviewers that are on this board. Uh, and essentially to facilitate the living donor recipient to be up front early again. And so the notion here really is that, you know, the NKR has a has a process for this that to engender additional trust in other centers, but also for those centers to realize that though this is a rare and unusual event, it's, you know, there is a safety net available for recipients. It doesn't affect the donor, unfortunately, has donated and that's that. But I thought it was uh an interesting analysis in a time when, you know, there's a lot of distrust in the medical community. It was great, again, to see them come forward and, and talk about this group. And again, remember that not every center in the United States participates. That it's There are some centers that are big enough with enough match pairs that they don't go into it or don't feel that it helps them necessarily. But to have an organizational structure to have facilitated almost 3,000 transplants in what, about eight years is, is phenomenal. Yeah, I'm just yeah. curious if, uh, if if you know that paired kidney exchange is continuing given COVID-19 or any doing it, or is are most of so, those completely uh, on pause yeah. right now? So two, as of UNOS reported, I didn't look this morning, as I used to look like every day, and then I stopped doing it. But as of April 5th, there were only 16 living donor transplants performed in the U.S. So wow. at least for kids. So yeah. I think the vast majority, like, you know, in March, 75% said they had shut down. I think it's probably 99%. I mean, mm -hmm. there are sporadic places in the country where uh, COVID-19 is probably less of a you know, concern or an issue. But I think for all of us, it's an issue. And I think the better part of valor, the, the better part is to first do no harm to the donor, to bring somebody healthy in besides me walking in the hospital every day. Well, I was sort of thinking that this would probably be at the tail end of the COVID pandemic. Like if living, when living donor starts up again, the last thing you're going to want to do is probably a paired kidney exchange involving multiple donors, multiple recipients. Yeah. I think it's going to be really tough for New York. Uh, you know, we had yeah. a research call earlier with a bunch of New York centers in the consortia and they're still swimming in COVID and there's still, you know, a lot of people have been detailed to other jobs and it just seems um, a, a hurdle that we will have to overcome. My last comment and is not to short shrift the basic scientists who sometimes feel that we don't give them the love, but uh, this is a, a, an amazing paper by Tanaka and colleagues from Dan Kreisel's lab at um, primarily at WashU, but he also has collaborators at a number of other centers, including UVA, uh, entitled IL-22 Required for Induction of Bronchus-Associated Lymphoid Tissue Intolerant Lung Allografts. And so, again, this notion of these vaults 
bronchus-associated lymphoid tissue. These are tertiary lymphoid organs. And there's there's a constant debate about what these organs are doing. You remember Fatty Locus years ago was saying, oh, they happen and, you know, are they beneficial? Do they mediate rejection? But this group uses a vascularized orthotopic lung transplant model in mice. Suffice it to say, it's not easy to do it, but they're, they're adept at it. And they have previously shown an association using a, 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 an, a, an incompatible donor and recipient and using costimulatory blockade using NICD40 and, um, and a CTLA4IG combination that they can induce long-term graft survival in this model, which is a highly highly um, immunogenic model without immunosuppression. And suffice it to say that when they get tolerance induction, they identified these faults being present, and they also identified an enrichment of both FOXP3T regulatory cells associated with this tolerant phenotype, as well as B cells. And when they, they depleted FOXP3 cells in this model, the B cells woke up and they had antibody-mediated rejection. And so the focus of this paper is to really delve more into how do these balls associate, what are their requirements, and, and how are FOXP3 cells, do, do we need these balls in order to occur uh, to get um, these Tregs in? And, and suffice it to say, with a lot of sophisticated uh, animal studies, both using depletion, depleting antibodies and genetic strain differences, they identify that BALTS require specific secretion of IL-22, that BALTS develop due to some unusual cells, these gamma-delta T cells that most of us don't think about very much, and these innate lymphoid cells, uh, type 3, which actually respond to IL-23 and then make IL-22. So there's an interplay with, uh, with, with those cells um, and the general trafficking of those cells into these BALTS. They have to have a certain... Uh, adhesion, it's called peripheral node addressin, which is expressed on the high endothelial uh, venule. But suffice it to say that if you have IL-22 deficiency or 23 deficiency, regulatory cells still get in. While these faults may not form in the, you know, in the absence of IL-22, you still have Tregs. And so the novelty of this paper is suggesting that these FOXP3 Tregs can get into these tolerant transplants independent of these, these other required signals, which seem to be required to make these lymphoid organs. So, you know, what are the, what it's, what are these lymphoid organs doing in this model is again, now really more, even more unclear. What are the B cells that are in these aggregates and how do they respond and function? You know, are they actually there educating the Tregs and the Tregs are learning that they're self? It's hard to know. And so I think that this group is sort of challenging you know, current paradigms in lung transplant, even sometimes a little bit of their own. I mean, I think that some groups were sort of thinking, well, this is that we're going to study this because this is going to lead to tolerance. But indeed, it's much more complicated. And you may, what is going on in humans, I don't know. So I, I didn't have time to really, you know, talk to lung people and find out, or, you know, are you looking for tertiary lymphoid organs? Is, is that something that's and in, in patients with long-term graft survival? Is that something you see or whether, what the relevance of this mouse paper is into humans, because I think that's, again, an important story. And the accompanying editorial talks a little bit about T-cell, B-cell interaction and, and tolerance promotion and, you know, what where are these Tregs coming from? Because there's an intimation, too, that I didn't really glean from this paper that that these are cells that are, are that are progressing in. And so it's a little bit different than these cells just sort of sitting there in these lymphoid aggregates. So I think more to come. And that's, 
probably less than five minutes on a basic science paper. Really nice immunofluorescent studies of these faults. Um, if you have time to look at the paper and, and spend a little bit more time. Great, thanks Roz and thanks Ben for, for joining us today. Um, excellent discussion. Um, we will be doing in May another COVID podcast. It was actually just um, uh, recorded, uh, the one from April. It's now uh, available in the AJT Highlights app and we'll be doing one next month and another podcast for June the regular way. So. Hope everybody is well out there and see you next time. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.